think your praises or your kindness may be just a little lavish. We're all just links in a chain. We who are trying to get this wonderful message out to others. And one is used in this way or in this particular and another in that. So we're just grateful if the Lord blesses our feeble efforts. Well, I don't know what to tell you. There are books back there besides our own. By the way, we have those two, The uh, Present Peril, The New Evangelicalism, and No Other Doctrine. If you don't have them, if you don't have that last one, be sure to get that. If you don't have either of them, they're $1.75 each, and they only sell together for $3, so there's a deal. Also, there is one book which is beginning to come to the fore among our readers more lately than it did when it was first published. And that's the book, The Controversy. Because I think it shows what brought about the new evangelicalism. The leaders of fundamental Christendom, if I can use that phrase, resisted the distinctive character of Paul's ministry and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation with its one body and one baptism the result of course was greater confusion and then they seemed to think they'd have to get together in some way so the way they devised was man's way that's the new evangelicalism but union is not unity beloved <laughs> there's a great difference so uh, we are having a special on the controversy it sells for $3.75, and we're selling them for only $2 just during this convention. If you write one day after, it's going to cost you $3.75 plus postage, unless you, send, unless you send the check with your order. All right. Also, we have uh, Dr. Woodbridge's book, The New Evangelicalism. Very well written. Great man of God. Nobody could question but he's well-qualified to write on the subject. So if you don't have it, make yourself at home. Of course, the other book stands are there too. Visit them all and see what you might be able not only to read, to purchase for yourself, but to have God use you to get this literature out to others. Now I was telling a group the other day about a restaurant there used to be in Cincinnati, Murphy's. Murphy's Restaurant, and they had a unique way of advertising. They used sandwich men. Now, you young people were still up in heaven when they used sandwich men. But a sandwich man is a man who walks the street as a sandwich. He's the bologna, or he's the food, and on each side is a sign. Each side is a billboard. He has a billboard advertising his product in the front and in the back. That's a sandwich man. Well, Murphy's had six, had uh, 12 of them. They had six men, oh, they were poor-looking, physically emaciated, weak, small, thin, and they walked tires, tiresomely or wearily through the streets of Cincinnati. And their signs read, we're on our way to Murphy's. And they also had six strapping giants. 
These men were also sandwich men, and they walked briskly through the streets saying, with the sign saying, we've just come from Murphy's. <laughs> now, our true desire, I know, in this Bible conference is not to get you to subscribe to anything, not to get you, first of all, to join anything. We hope you join Berean Bible Fellowship. But it's not to have you do anything particular first. First and foremost, we hope that you'll be able to go away from here spiritually, walking briskly away, saying, I've just come from Murphy's. <laughs> That's what we want. We want you fed and happy and strong in the Lord. Now, I've been asked to speak on the subject redeeming the time in view of the apostasy. And as I thought this subject over, I could think of no better passage to center my remarks around than those remarkable words with which Paul closed his earthly ministry. Now you know where to turn, or you should. Second Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now let me ask, is the speaker tuned in about right? Is everything okay? You can hear me, understand me, doesn't jar you? Okay. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, where the apostle says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. Now, it is evident that the Apostle Paul wrote these words after learning, perhaps just after learning, that his last appeal before Caesar had failed, before the wicked Nero, and that Nero had ordered his execution. He says in this sixth verse, more literally, I'm already being poured out. I'm ready to be offered. The word there is a certain kind of an offering. It's a libation. It's a drink offering. I am already being poured out. Now, this is quite natural when you put yourself in Paul's place. I'm already being poured out. You can almost feel his emotional experience with him as finally the jailer comes to the cell door and says, Paul... I'm afraid I have bad news for you. What is the news? It went against you. Your plea has failed. You're going to be executed. Can you imagine, when did, when did his martyrdom begin? Not when that sword flashed, if he was killed by, uh, by decapitation. 
It was when he first learned that that sword would flash. Wouldn't that be the case with you? There he was in prison and he learns, oh, this is it. This is it. I must submit to the executioner. And you can imagine the flow of emotional feelings. I'm already being poured out. But this word poured out or this phrase here has a very special significance. Poured out as a drink offering. We read about that in the Old Testament and especially in Numbers 15. The drink offering was a libation of wine, a, a drink that was not drunk. It was instead poured out in thanks upon either the burnt or the meal offerings. I should say on both of them. And both of these offerings spoke of the sacrificial work of Christ in our behalf. And the drink offering was an offering of thanks. It was a libation of worship and thanksgiving. And Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a libation on the sacrifice of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So the apostle turned his last difficult experience. He turned his last struggle into an act of worship and self-abnegation and adoration of the Christ who died for him. He gladly and thankfully gave his life in death and poured out his offering, as it were, on the offering of that wonderful one who never deserved to die, that one who died in agony and shame and disgrace for sins he had never committed, for your sins and mine and Paul's. Isn't that wonderful? To read these words and see in this, put yourself in the place. Put yourself in his place apart from being ready to die. There were many things he still wanted to do and I would want to do and you would want to do if you're working for Christ, certainly as Paul was. But this is it. You must submit to the executioner. And Paul says, so be it. I submit not only uh, willingly, I do it gladly. And I give my life as an offering of thanks and adoration to the one who died for me. But that's only part of it. That's the, it's spiritual in a way, but it was very much the physical and the temporal side of it. But it goes on. I am already being poured out and the time of my departure is at hand. Beloved, his execution was to fulfill his express desire. Remember Philippians 1.23? I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. And here he says, using the same root, the same root word, 
the time of my departure is here. The time of my departure has arrived. All this is wonderful. This word departure is a nautical term. It means to loose the moorings and to cast off. It's used of ships who first have the ropes loosened and taken aboard and finally push off from shore and there they go out to sea. Now I feel I know something about this. Some of you know I was brought up pretty near the coast and we had a great deal to do as uh, city missionaries, dad and some of us brothers, in meeting missionaries and uh, sending missionaries off on these ocean liners. And we've been at all the liners, the English liners, the Canard, and the American, the White Star, United States line, the Italian liners, the Scandinavian. And we often used to have fun over the, the different departures, how different they were. You go to an Italian or a French line ship and uh, the steamer is leaving and the people are saying goodbye and they're all crying and their handkerchiefs are out and they're having a great emotional time before they leave. You go to the canard line and these Englishmen, you know how they are, they're really phlegmatic and the Dutch are about the same. You don't see any tears. They kiss each other and perhaps go as far even as to hug each other, but that's it. <laughs> And they say goodbye, and they go aboard ship. And uh, there's one uh, nation and one line I'm not going to mention, but we, we noticed again and again, they were all just drunk before the thing even left, <laughs> you see. But there was one thing the same about them all. I mean about the passengers. They wanted to get going. They wanted that ship to, to loosen its moorings and to cast off. They had a destination. They wanted to get to England or Norway or Germany or wherever. And they said goodbye in a way more impatiently than the folks on shore. And when finally the word was sounded, all ashore that's going ashore, that's what it used to be, you know. If you're going ashore, now's the time to go. And that shrill whistle, finally the visitors had to leave. And there seemed to be something about those standing on the, at the railings of these great ships that seemed, oh, this is wonderful. This is exciting. The, the ship is leaving its moorings. We're going out to sea. Oh, there's a certain freedom and liberty. And that's the word that the Apostle Paul uses. He had been so long bound to a very difficult life a life made difficult because he had determined it would be so, not just because he wanted it to be difficult, but he had determined to be faithful, and he had suffered and borne much for Christ. He had a thorn in the flesh that was constantly, uh, constantly made his work difficult for him. But finally, here it was, he says, the time of my departure has come. Oh, wouldn't this be wonderful? to cast off, cast off from this poor world and go to be with Christ, which is far, far better. But now in verse 7, he adds three metaphors, the three that we generally associate together. Let me read them for you. Verse 7 of 2 Timothy 4. 
I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Beloved, the more I study this seventh verse of 2 Timothy 4, the more convinced I am that these are not just three metaphors, three different likenesses. The first one is the military, and then you have athletics, and then you have stewardship. But it's not just three different metaphors. They are progressive. They all have to do with keeping the faith. And numbers one and two converge upon number three. I'm going to try to show you what I mean. Let's begin now with 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I have fought a good fight. Now, it is true that the original word agonizomai has to do with agony uh, is used of any intense conflict, whether it's boxing or wrestling or racing or generally with fighting of some kind, and intense fighting. Most often, and I think certainly here, the military is in view. Some people have wondered whether the apostle wasn't a bit boastful here. In other places, he freely acknowledges, I have not yet attained, I'm not yet perfect, and in Romans 7, the good that I would, I fail to do so often, and the evil that I would not, that I do, O wretched man that I am, and in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Some people think that in the light of that, Paul was boasting a little when he said, I fought a good fight. But, beloved, he wasn't boasting, and that becomes very evident. It is evident that he did not mean he had fought well. Oh, I only wish that I, in my past life, and so well. But he did not say. see that the definite article is found before the word good. Not I have fought a good fight, but I have fought the good fight. Which good fight did he mean? Well, he certainly must be referring to the same fight that he exhorted Timothy to fight in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of the faith. The article is there, too. <coughs> fight the good fight of the faith. And what is the faith? It can only be the one faith of Ephesians 4, 5. There is no other with Paul. I have fought the good fight, and that fight is clearly the good fight of the faith. That is the faith the doctrine, the things to be believed that our risen Lord committed to him. If, uh, Acts 20, verse 24, the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the good news of the grace of God. And Romans 16, 25, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ 
according to the revelation of the mystery. May I urge you, dear friends, it's wonderful to see the distinctions in Scripture, but don't make distinctions where there are none. Some think that Paul's gospel of the grace of God is different from the, minister, from the mystery. Oh, no, it is not. It is not different from what he calls the preaching of the cross. That is all part and parcel of the same great secret revealed to him. Everything we have is from the grace that flows from Calvary. And whether it is the forgiveness of our sins or our reconciliation to God in Christ or our baptism into Christ, or our being, our union into one body by the blood of Christ, whether it's our position in the heavenlies, every bit of it, read it. It's always by the cross, by the cross, through his blood, and so on, you see. So just because the cross as such, that is his death, the death of Christ, was predicted, that does not for a minute mean that the preaching of the cross the cross as Paul preached it was in any way made known until it was made known through the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says, I have fought the good fight. How he warred, how he battled in defense of that one faith. How he fought the legalism of the Galatians and the sectarianism and the permissivism of the Corinthians and the Gnosticism, the exaltation of the human intellect that had gained ground among the Colossians, how he battled every other ism and error that entered into these churches constantly, it seemed. He was putting on an armor and fighting something that was a substitute for that one faith. So this all indicates, beloved, that to keep the faith, we must fight the good fight of the faith. Do you see what I'm getting at? The first of these metaphors only leads us the first step to the third, to the last. To keep the faith, we must fight the good fight of the faith, and we can't keep it in any other way. I stress this because, sad to say, in this, oh, affluent day and affluent country, there are so many that think that the church, uh, the church as such and the local church is sort of a nice club where we gather together and sing about how happy we are to be saved and perhaps tell some others about it too. And we fail to observe the warning of the apostle paul i warn you i know that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in not sparing the flock and among your own selves also shall men arise how often he warns us beloved of the constant activity of satan using his wiles to bring some sort of heresy some sort of error some sort of wrong viewpoint unscriptural and ungodly viewpoint into the church. Now, why, though, did he call this the good fight? I have fought the good fight. This was no credit he was handing himself. 
Ah, this is a credit to the fight he was talking about. I have fought the good fight. Beloved of all the fighting that has taken place between men since Cain killed Abel, all the fighting that has gone on, this alone is worthy of the title, The Good Fight. This is the only fight that God truly can honor and bless and that he has pledged himself to bless. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, does this mean then that we should be quarrelsome, contentious, always trying to pick a bone with oh you know that it can't be that certainly the Holy Spirit could not have meant that but he did mean something when Paul said and he said it exultingly and joyfully and triumphantly I fought the good fight it means that we should never lose sight of the fact that Satan is busy every day every hour every moment he never sleeps. He never takes a vacation. He never goes on leave. And Christians are not awake to it. Somebody suggested when we wrote that booklet, the Berean Bible Fellowship, that we remember to put in it that God, according to his word in the epistles of Paul, would have us not only stand for the truth, but stand against error. And he says that again and again. And this is very important, beloved. Paul, he would have been called a negativist if anybody ever was. He was constantly trying to correct errors in the church. Was he contentious? Was Paul the kind of person that just wanted to fight all the time? Ah, oh, no, he was just a good soldier of Jesus Christ and realized that he was Christ's ambassador on enemy territory and it would take some fighting to keep the faith. Uh, he was just, I say, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. May God help us to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. I, I honestly wish that all those who fight about everything else, they fight, oh, sometimes in very subtle ways. They wouldn't come out and fight in the open about that. But they fight for their own rights and fight, oh, the ungodly are fighting openly for their own rights. But I'm talking about Christians now. They want their rights and they fight for their positions and they fight for their salaries and they fight for their... I wish all of us, beloved, who fight for other things, any petty, selfish cause whatsoever, might become engaged instead in the good fight. Cause whatsoever might become engaged instead in the good fight. Have you ever noticed in the Apostle Paul where the truth was concerned? Not only was he bold as a lion, but he asked others to pray for him that he might be bold. Pray that I might open my mouth boldly 
to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. But where selfish, personal considerations were concerned, he was meek as a lamb. He said, being defamed, we entreat. When they revile us, we bless them. And that was his, his constant attitude. And I believe that's why God blessed him. And I believe that's why he uh, uses that particular phrase and why the Holy Spirit caused him, moved him to use that phrase, the good fight. Beloved, there is a good fight. Only a minority are waging it, and I think less of a minority than years back. It was said of Sir Robert Anderson, he was a sturdy fighter. Today, that would not be good. <laughs> that, would not be, that would not be a compliment. In those days, it was, and it ought to be. We ought to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, wielding the sword of the Spirit. The apostle not only fought the good fight, but he urged others and he trained others to fight that good fight. Well, you have an extended passage on it in Ephesians 6. He says here, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He says, take the whole armor of God. Be sure to take the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And stand, 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 stand four times. Think of it. Ah, may God help us, beloved, to enter that, to enlist in that army and to enter that good fight. I've heard so many excuses. Excuses by those who try to dodge the draft. And someday they're going to stand before their Lord. And the Lord's going to say, however he says it, this will certainly be the substance of it. Didn't you know that so-and-so was going on? You did nothing about it? You didn't raise your voice against it? You didn't do your part to help those who are in the church so that this, this leaven might be purged out and that the truth might prevail? This is what's surely going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. And yet, I hear Christians, I have letters in my files, and others have said it to me. One man said, but I'm too old to take sides. Too old to take sides? And sadly, he is taking sides, taking the wrong side. That's what generally happens. Another says, but I have some very good personal friends involved in this. And another says, some of the strongest members of my congregation and so on and so on and so on. Beloved, these are all excuses for plain, I was going to say cowardice, I'll say timidity. <laughs> but they're not right. You're dodging the draft and you're going to suffer loss, beloved, if you don't enlist in this one good fight. Now, isn't it interesting how Paul's soldierly conduct can rebuke us by God's word can rebuke us for our so often wanting to be off duty for our so often say oh this this does trouble me but I'm going to pray and I'll just leave it with the Lord <laughs> you know 
Here Paul's soldierly conduct rebukes us. After years of warring for Christ as a good soldier for Christ, he's able to say, I've fought the good fight. Now let's go on here. The uh, fourth chapter, seventh verse. I've finished my course. I've fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Now, we know that the, of course, he's referring to the race course, you know that, and we know that the apostle often refers to the races. He uses them as spiritual pictures to get truth across. And, of course, there were different kinds of races. Uh, he speaks, for example, of the word uh, race in this same context, uh, or in this same, this same word, I should say. He speaks of the races uh, in connection with uh, the new and old nature. He speaks of it in many ways, but there's one added uh, one added thought here, one added idea. It's the race course. I have finished my course. Now this surely indicates that the length and the direction or the path of this course were previously arranged and that the rules were clearly defined now he was able to say, I've finished it. I've finished my course. This course was by no means, and the Christian course is by no means a hundred-yard dash, don't you think it? Remember what he says in Hebrews 12:1: Run with patience the race that is set before you. And you can almost picture the racer. The foot racer, he's raced and run and run and run and run until he thinks his heart will break and his lungs will burst. Still he runs on. You've seen pictures of them. Faces all distorted and yet they're running, running on in order to win that award. Now right here he isn't speaking of the award though. He's speaking of something else. He's speaking of finishing the course. I have finished my course. Isn't it interesting to read in the record the feelings of the Apostle Paul as the race wore on and he became weary in body and troubles and problems multiplied. Still erased, and of course the idea in the symbol of the race here is to speak of the energy and the endurance necessary to win the race and to finish that course. And still and still he's putting everything into it. Picture him there as he stands before his beloved brethren at Miletus in Acts 20. And uh, it's made clear to him what's going to happen. 
more suffering, more persecution. But he says, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy. Get it? That I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. His anxiety more and more seemed to be, oh, if only now I won't fail. If only God will give me the grace to keep running, to keep putting everything into it until this course has been run. Have you ever thought that if Paul had quit one year before the end, most of his ministry or his ministry for the larger part would have gone to waste. It would have been noised abroad. He gave, he gave up to, toward the end. He must have thought better of it. There wasn't everything to this that he said because he quit a year before he died and he, he retired. If he had quit one day, if he had quit one day before his execution, you know what they would have said? Yes, but when he faced the executioner, he gave up. Ah, oh, Paul says, I never want to give up. Oh, God, help me to finish my course with joy and with satisfaction this wonderful ministry that I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. How many men there have been, you, you've seen them, you've read about them, you know cases in the church where great men of God failed toward the close of their lives. Oh, God help us, you and me, not to fail. God help you and me not to begin first by condoning apostasy, by condoning serious departure or any departure from the word and then little by little going along with it God help us God help us let every man take heed uh, how does that go take heed lest you fall he that standeth that it is he that standeth take heed lest he fall and neither you nor I nor any of us have in us what would make us stand. Not any of us have the nature, have the character that would naturally make us stand. The devil is wise. He is strong. His wiles are unbelievably subtle. All we can do is do what Paul did. Lean and pray, oh God, help me. There he prays still in Ephesians 6. Think of it as one of his latest letters. Pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. But isn't it wonderful for Paul the time when, though in a lesser way, he could cry what our Lord cried on Calvary. Finished! Finished! It's done! The executioner's coming! 
The executioner is coming. I've finished my course. And his wish, his prayer of Acts 20, verse 24, was gloriously answered that I might finish my course with joy. But we still haven't finished. Look, please, at the end of verse 7. I'll read the whole again. I have fought, a, fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. The time is going fast, and it'll keep going fast unless somebody pulls a plug. Any kind people around here? But uh, <laughs> the time is going fast, but I'm sure you'll find this. If you look up that word kept, I have kept the faith. It means to keep safe. It means to guard. It means to defend. And Paul was constantly standing in defense of the faith as he wielded the sword of the Spirit against untruth. And as he put all his energies into keeping the faith. Now, thank God, he could say, I've kept the faith. Turn, please, just a moment to 1 Timothy 6.20. I want to show you that this word kept means that. 1 Timothy 6.20. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. You know, in the original, that's just two words, the deposit. <laughs> the deposit. Remember, we have this treasure in what kind of vessels? Earthen vessels. Timothy was one of those earthen vessels. God had put that precious deposit in this earthen vessel. So Paul says, oh, Timothy, keep the deposit, that which is committed to thy trust. Well, we have that. We put our deposits in a trust company, don't we? And we commit it to their trust. Look, please, at 2 Timothy chapter 12. Now, this will confirm further what our brother Johnson's rendering of this passage. For the which cause I also suffer these things, Paul said. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, other versions have it. He's able to keep that which he has committed unto me. When you know the original two words, there's nothing to it. My deposit. He's able to keep my deposit. I couldn't keep it myself. I'm only an earthen vessel. I would crack or break. I would shatter into many pieces. Ah, but he's able to keep my deposit. Doesn't this agree with the 14th verse? Look at verse 14. That good thing which is committed unto thee, there it is, that precious that valuable deposit keep but keep how by the holy ghost which dwelleth in thee and what is that deposit well that's look at the verse between you can't misread it hold fast the form of sound words that is the exact words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in christ jesus and now at last the time had come. I have kept the faith. 
Oh, what a, you say a terrible time he had just heard. He's going to be executed. I say a wonderful time. What a, not just a milestone, the goal had been reached. The executioner is at hand. I'm already being poured out. And the time of my departure is here. I've fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. Beloved, what I've been saying from, or pointing out from 2 Timothy 4, especially verse 7, doesn't it show that to keep the faith it is necessary to fight the good fight of the faith? And to put everything we have into it and to keep it up endlessly as it were while life shall last? Otherwise we ourselves are not going to be able to say I've kept the faith. I know dear men of God who once were standing for something they were wielding the sword of the Spirit. And today they give the bread of life out. People are fed in great degree. Today they give their people the water of life. Today they give them light from the Word. But they're not standing against anything. They just feel that, well, we should try to be as loving and gracious and listen like the devil to the Lord. He'll even give you scriptures to quote the servant of the Lord should not strive, you know. <laughs> and you'd think Paul had written nothing about fighting the good fight of the faith. But here it is, the time has come, and he says, henceforth, a crown. Ah, victory. Victory, victory, you say? Victory? He had been hounded and, and persecuted all his life, all his Christian life long victory one after another he had lost battles in court to save his own life victory finally even nero said this is it execute him and is to be he's to be executed his life is to be taken victory ah uh, if you don't think that this was a victory it's because you're thinking of temporal things rather than the eternal it's because you're looking at it from the standpoint of the flesh rather than the spirit. What greater victory could there be than this seeming defeat? The great warrior finally having come to the end of his career. The great racer finally having run his course. And God says, oh, you did well. He's going to receive a crown. Ah, oh, there's a great difference in God's viewpoint or the spiritual viewpoint of victory and defeat and the fleshly viewpoint of victory and defeat. Many a man who has stood for the truth and has been rejected and despised and perhaps has died in shame and disgrace was an actually a great victor. And someday we'll stand before the Lord and we'll receive that crown. God doesn't view victories like fallen, selfish human beings do. Victory 
victory indeed. And so this offering up of Paul's life, the pouring out as an oblation, an act of worship and thanksgiving on the offering of Christ was the most splendid victory of his whole career. Oh, may we see the truth. May we see life, the Christian life, in that way, beloved, for this is God's standpoint. Ah, um, my friend, will you, will I receive that crown? It says a crown of righteousness, and there's more to the verse that would take a separate sermon again. So we're not going into that or why he calls it a crown of righteousness. For our purpose tonight, it is enough. Just to hear him say, in that dark cell, I wish I could have heard him say it. In a way, I wish I could have been there to hear from the lips of this truly great man of God. I have fought the good fight. He wouldn't take a bit of it back. He was grateful and glad he had done it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, a crown. Oh, you say, but all of us, all of us can't partake of the Christian life in this way. We can't all be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We can't all put everything into keeping the faith, which is, of course, to give the message of grace free course and let it be glorified. Ah, but we can all have a part in the total effort. Not all of us are preachers. Not all of us are writers. But we can all have a part. Parents can bring up their children to study that word and become well acquainted and train them to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, able to wield the sword of the Spirit. Wives, instead of discouraging their husbands, can encourage their husbands to stand where great spiritual and moral issues are concerned. Young people can prepare. Ah, oh, get into it. How often you see these TV ads and hear the commercials on the radio, get into the Navy, get into the Army, get into the Marines. Ah, oh, this is the one good fight to train for. Ah, beloved, no matter in what sphere of this world's activity you may be found, if right now you young people, and thank God for the many who are doing it, will study that book, start with the epistles of Paul, take your stand four square in the writings of the man who was told to address us, and then in the light of the Pauline epistles, study the whole word and prepare to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. That's what God needs today. They say, oh, God needs more people with lo love. Oh, don't think for a minute that I would minimize love. We do need love, but what is true love? Is it true love to, to sit by and, and drift with the, with the tide when the apostasy begins to move in? Is that love? That's the opposite of love. 
Remember what God said to the father who doesn't chasten his child? He that chasteneth not his child betimes hateth him. You hate your son if you don't discipline him. And it is certainly so with us. By God's grace, it is our responsibility in the love of Christ and for the love of God to, to do our part to keep the faith. Oh, may God grant it. If there's one prayer I have prayed for tonight, it's not merely that God might help me bring this message. It has been that God will change us all, that God will do something in our hearts, in our lives tonight, that we will never get over, that he will change us and make of us what we ought to be for him. He can do it if we're willing. And you fathers and mothers, you working people, as though we ministers don't work, and you young people, ah, oh, you can begin right tonight and it'll be a thrill, it'll be a joy, it'll make life so rewarding as you've never known it to be before. Heartaches? Of course, you've seen generals cry. I've seen them on TV, of course, seen them cry because the general's son was killed in battle. Ah, but listen, with all the heartaches of this good fight, it is so rewarding, mostly because if we dodge this draft, we cannot be in the center of the will of God. And we will most assuredly lose any spiritual power that we had. And beloved, there is no greater loss for the Christian than the power and blessing of the Holy Spirit. Ah, may God bind these words so poorly brought. I wish they could have been brought ten times more effectively. But what I've tried to say to you is the truth. God help you to enlist in the good fight and to stand as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, counting not the cost. Soldiers, those who go into the armed forces, have to leave their families and their loved ones and their sweethearts behind. We may have to leave some behind that we would so fain take with us. Ah, but listen, all of this is amply repaid by our blessed Lord, who in the measure that we faithfully serve him, gives us the consciousness of his blessing within. Thank you, Brother Wolf.